0: You're listening to the Wild Women Who Write podcast. Kathy Nichols, Kim Conry, Elizabeth Jones, and Gabby Anderson.
1: Well, I am ridiculously excited to welcome 2023's Georgia Author of the Year for first novel, Robert Waltney. The Cicada Tree is a brilliant combination of of coming-of-age, magical realism, and southern hellfire and glory, it's not surprising that his first novel is mythical in proportion. Robert's own bio reads like a cross between a Southern superhero and one of the brightest new voices in the writing thing. His part of his bio. By day, Robert serves as vice president of Easter Seals North Georgia, Inc., a nonprofit organization strengthening children and their families at the most critical times in their development. Through his nonprofit work, he is a champion for early childhood literacy and all the hours between he writes. Robert, thank you so much for making time for us tonight.
2: Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you ladies.
1: I wanted to ask you first, because we are very excited about the Georgia Author of the Year, and you probably can't really predict this, but you can say, I suppose, how it's been so far. What impact do you think winning this honor is going to have on the rest of your career, and what impact has it had on the writing you're doing now?
2: First of all, extremely honored and was extremely surprised. I was in amazing company in in my category. You know, by, by nature, I think, well, I am, and I think a lot of other writers and artistic folks as well are insecure. <laughs> so it's certainly, it certainly is validating in some ways. You know, when you have a first novel coming out into the world, you just don't know how it's going to be received. So more than anything, I'm grateful that, that there are individuals out there who enjoyed it and that think, that it has merit. I'm not quite certain. I think, well, forever and always, what's amazing is that on my writing resume, I'll be able to say I was Georgia author of the year. Um, with that, I mean, I do feel a great sense of responsibility for putting quality work out into the world now. So I think that any long-term impact is just gonna be motivating me to just continue to evolve and be the best writer I can be.
1: Our wild woman, our fellow wild woman, Kim Connery couldn't be here tonight. She was Georgia author of the Year for her romance novel. It isn't totally a romance novel, it's a sci-fi romance. So we were very, very honored to have her. I do think you're right about it. It kind of increases your responsibility, increases your confidence, but it's also a little bit of a not a burden for yes. s- at all. but you do have a, heart, a bigger responsibility to uh, make sure you're doing the best you can, which you would have done anyways. I love your protagonist, Annalise Newell. I like her because she's not perfect. I mean, she's a little girl, so of course she's not perfect, but she also has a, an adult insightfulness and uh, some scary adult, not so much failings, but she can be scary, you know, she can be petty like an adult. And, uh, and sometimes we don't do that with children. We don't, we give them the adult characteristics, but they're all positive and i love that you kind of have her balanced out a little bit like that i think she has one of the most striking voices since scout and to kill a mockingbird and i love the idea that you too were a unique child i was reading on your website i have did not have great experience with my kindergarten teacher my brother who is a musician and a very much a creative type not a good experience with his kindergarten teacher so i think where i feel like i'm in good company you said a kindergarten teacher once loomed over me, staring down the crooked barrel of her nose. You are a peculiar sort of boy, she said, regarding the spangled ballerina tutu I managed to pull up over my Sears and Roebuck tough skin jeans. She got one thing right. Indeed, I was, and still remain, a peculiar sort of boy. In the by-and-by, I suspect this is just why you might love my writing, and I think it's what gives your writing such a strong voice. Do you feel that voice is the most important thing in a novel, or would you say the way you present your characters through their voice?
2: I think there are many things that, that are working in tandem that are equally important. I do think that certainly voice needs to be compelling. I'm a great admirer of literary fiction. When I set out to write The Cicada Tree, I wanted to write, I love language, I wanted to explore language, uh, but not only did I want it to be literary, which you know, is typically character-driven, but I wanted something to happen. So for me, it was a balance of character and a balance of plot within the realm of the literary. That's what I was hoping to accomplish.
1: Well, I think you did it. So that, that's congratulatory. I also have to tell you, I was a high school teacher for a long time. And I taught. we had to teach, and I say we had to teach it because it was a hard sell to a lot of kids. Great expectations. And I love the fact that you found Miss Havisham so absolutely captivating. And I spent hours trying to find ways to show the kids that that was actually a funny novel, as well as having all these cool, gothic, scary people in it. And I have to say, I, I, that's one thing I particularly love about your backstory, is your fascination with Miss Havisham. Is there a character in your novel oh, for people who were not forced to read great expectations or did not love reading great expectations? Miss Havisham is a jilted bride forever in her wedding dress with this hideous decaying wedding cake and uh, and she has this young niece I think it is grand niece uh, it's a little vague if i Yes,
2: yeah, she I think she she actually adopts a young girl named Estella.
1: Yeah, and she adopts her strictly to wreak vengeance on the male species. Uh, so she trains her to do that. I'm going to ask, and then I, I haven't thought if you we don't share the same thought. But was one of your characters maybe inspired, or did Miss Havishan contribute at all to your characters?
2: I always think of that character, and I don't know why. I suppose that I when I experienced that book, great great expectations. I was in the fourth grade remember we read the book and then we watched a masterpiece theater version of it so i had the opportunity to to experience both the book and a film adaptation she's so wonderfully gothic i think she's one of the best gothic characters that's ever been written and i was certainly fascinated by the the tragic nature and just the fact as you said earlier that she conspires with young estella to, to wreak havoc on men in the world in a way i suppose i thought of Miss Havisham a little when I wrote the character Cordelia Mayfield who isn't anything at all like Miss Havisham but the psychology of Miss Havisham I felt a kindred attachment to when I was writing Cordelia from a psychological perspective I suppose.
1: I thought that same thing and I remembered the scene where Annalise is standing the piano piece and that really reminded me of the whole Miss Havisham vibe, mm-hmm. that intimidation, that practically cackling, but way, way too sophisticated for any kind of cackling going on in that family. But and the gothic elements of what happened, you know, what happened to the son, what, why is she the way she is, why you know, and why is she re- trying to wreak havoc? So I I definitely did not think of Miss Havisham when I read it. But when I read that you loved Miss Havisham, I thought, I think Miss Havisham snuck in there.
2: She did. I, you right. know, I did I did think of her when I was writing Cordelia.
3: The way that the two older women weaponize the younger girl are is very similar, very interesting. How Marlissa is put in this strange position of, of still being a little girl, but she has this charm. She exudes on adult males as well not just the kids and yeah so it's it does definitely have great expectations parallels in that respect
2: absolutely
3: and i would say in
1: your book more happens than in great expectations although a lot happens in great expectations it was just a hard sell to get the kids to understand that it was kind of a mystery unfolding and all these sorts of things your book is not uh, hard to get into it that way and become immediately interested and fascinated and invested in the family, especially Annalise and Etta and And I wondered, were you, did were you worried about the reception to your novel? Were you in? You said you were insecure. I think we're all insecure, or but also the strength of your characters, particularly the relationship between Etta And Annalise, did you have faith that people were going to love them as much as you did or
2: not? Well, I hoped, yeah. When I set out to write, this, when I was writing The Cicada Tree, you know, I just really wanted to write that book that I'd always been looking for myself. And I really didn't think commercially, which is probably not a smart thing to do. (laughs) But I thought that if I write all of the things that I love, if I incorporated those things into the book, that perhaps other people would, love it too and i had a strong sense that there would be a book that the majority of reader would be women and i felt like people would find the characters interesting you know annalise is flawed but she's likable um you know it's interesting you know right, that some individuals like annalise i think most individuals did but some people felt were a little concerned about some of her behavior some of the undertones regarding that good kind of hurt but, but you know she's an 11 year old girl who's it's a coming of age story, so there's a lot, lot going on. There's a lot of conflict within young Annalise. I think that you know what worried me was writing secondary characters that, that were not white, and I, in the from the 1950s, and I wanted to be respectful. I wanted to make certain that I steer clear of all of the things that anyone might be concerned about. I did. I became terrified weeks out from the book coming out, you know, pr- prior to the tree coming out and we'd been in the midst of the pandemic, the doors were just starting to open up again. But prior to that, when, when this book was out on submission, there was that whole American Dirt controversy. Um, there was that whole social unrest and a lot of negative attention being given to the South. So I was really worried about Southern fiction and my ability to be able to get this book out into the world so i was terrified the whole experience is very terrifying you know i hope you know that when i wrote miss Wesley, for instance who was young eda grandmother who, who was an older black woman i really wrote her with the reverence i would have given a grand my own grandmother and that's what i hope that i accomplished and so far people have been very kind and no one has said anything regarding the, the relationship between the young girls or anything regarding the relationship between Miss Wesley and the the Newell family.
1: And what I really like about that and what I think you did a really good job with is Annalise is aware of the imbalance of power between the two of them, even as a young girl. And Edda Mae's just so darn sweet. Mm-hmm. She's just, well, she will be in a re- the relationship just because she loves her. And she doesn't question it, but she's not unaware of it. I almost see her as a, a main character, but we don't see things through her viewpoint. And I think that's important that we don't, because I think that's where some of that controversy and problems come when we pretend we can see things through the eyes of an imbalanced and imperfect relationship from the person who is not in the position of power. So I think that's the secret of getting that across. Did that beautifully. Thank you. I wanted just to read a couple of your your reviews because I think they do a great job of explaining this genre mashup, sort of, while keeping in keeping with Southern fiction. But but I was recently at my doctor's office and he asked me what I did, which was amazing. Doctors usually don't do that, so I I have a new friend in my doctor. And I said, I'm a writer. And he said, well, what do you write? And I said, I write, I have my tagline. I write write, Southern suspense with heart and humor. And I loved your tagline, which was?
2: Spellbinding fiction with a Southern drawl.
1: Spellbinding, and I love that, with a Southern drawl. So he asked me, what makes it Southern? And I thought, well, the characters make it Southern because people have a sense of place built into them. And if you've been in the South most of your life or all of your life, it's going to become a part of you. And that's going to come out in things that you say and the way you approach situations and problems. And it was a great question because I don't know that I've thought about that before because it's so much a part of me. Of course, it's Southern because it's part of who I am. Better, worse, the whole thing. So I thought that I love that yours was similar. But let me just share some reviews and then I'll let other people talk. The Gothic beauty of a relentless Georgia summer is brought to life through Gwaltney's deliberate details and exquisite imagery, while all the while evil lurks beneath the surface. From where or what the reader does not know, but is as convinced by Gwaltney's expert st- storytelling as he is. And then it's the, another review it, this is Southern Gothic with a vengeance. A dark blast of family, secrets, strained loyalties, and bitter betrayals. We follow the characters with fear and hope, dreading what might happen to Annalise, even as we turn the pages. And uh, this is from Christopher Swanee, and he says, Robert Walton is a writer to watch. And it's going to be fun to watch. You're going to be fun Thank to you. watch. And I know that Elizabeth is both a literary fiction writer and a writer of poetry, she loves language. We all do, but Elizabeth approaches a lot of her writing and her reading through the sound of the language. And I'm gonna let her talk.
3: The things that I wanted to touch on, one is since we brought up magical realism, and that's one of my favorite subgenres, I guess you could call it. And so, just for people listening who maybe aren't familiar with it. I would say that your book even though it's it is southern gothic and southern gothic inherently has some magical realism to it as we were talking about before we started recording yours is actually almost in a traditional sense you touch on a lot of the same elements that classic magical realist authors like gabriel garcia marquez um, love in the time of cholera as the title suggests there's there's a plague happening there's pestilence there's you know widespread illness and so for you it's the cicadas and you know whatever this it's kind of like there's a there's a borderline between what's happening in the natural world but it has like a supernatural overlay to it there will be all kinds of things that the that the pestilence or the plague or unusual weather as well how it just stirs up all of this hidden underbelly for everyone. And, you know, there's all these secret longings and identities and social connections and familial connections that people aren't aware of until there's its like, there's this vortex in nature that creates this. And so, you know, I would say that those elements of the backdrop of the setting, but also the way that you have characters that have uh, special gifts that they're born with. And often children will have these gifts and everyone just accepts it. No one has a problem with it. Everyone just rolls with it. And I love that because as the reader, everything that you were presenting, I was able to just roll with it too. And it was just very enjoyable. Like I also didn't feel like, what are you talking about? You know? Someone could uh, have have angelic operatic voice at such a young age, or be able to read stitchery, on you know all of these different elements that you have to it. So, um, how much of a study have you done at all in what you write, or is it just kind of are you just kind of immersed in it?
2: My choices seem to come to me from a natural perspective. You know, I've not really studied. I really am. I think, from a storytelling perspective, self-taught. I think that. I'll, I think that some of it. I think everyone is a storyteller. Everyone has the potential to tell stories. But I always felt, from a very young age, that that I was a storyteller. I just wasn't sure how I go about telling my stories. But I think that for me, you know, it's interesting. You learn a lot about yourself when you're writing a novel. And when I was, someone asked me about the elements of. Um, these young folks these young people who had extraordinary abilities and i think for me i've always been fascinated and drawn to people who have great talent or extraordinary abilities and i think you know as a child and especially you know i think you you were reading kathy earlier that that my kindergarten teacher referred to me as a peculiar boy and of course being a peculiar boy in a small southern town isn't a thing you necessarily want to be So I think that I lived in my imagination quite a bit, really, to get through difficult times. And I think as children, sometimes, and I think that's why young people are fascinated with superheroes or individuals who have extraordinary abilities, because you know, from a from a fantasy perspective, you sort of imagine yourself having this secret something that others don't have, and that it I think it helps boost your own confidence and it really sort of helped me living that very vibrant creative imaginary life internally that really got me through those difficult times in South Georgia. So I think that that's one of the reasons why. And also I think that for me magic magical realism is hope and I don't know that any of us would want to to look into tomorrow without the possibility of hope.
3: That's beautiful. that's excellent. I love that. And to go further on just the, the way that magical realism starts, as literary fiction it's the it's the conventions of of literary fiction you know supercharged with hope in the form of magic as you're saying and i guess i'll indulge myself to talk to another writer of literary fiction there are sometimes you know when i'll go to an event and there will be someone teaching fiction and how to be successful uh, a successful writer and there will be almost a slight disdain for literary fiction that will come up that surprises me. Um, I've heard it described as, well, you know, it's like those books, those literary style books where someone just goes on for a couple pages about a blade of grass. <laughs> and I think, well, that's not what makes it literary. That's what makes it boring. <laughs> or, or, You know, so that has nothing to do with what makes something literary fiction or not but another thing too is that i've heard the advice given for care for people to reveal characters only in terms of action and dialogue and that also has kind of uh, struck me as peculiar it's like a turn in the tide towards uh, screenplay writing, perhaps, and and that advice getting overlaid onto fiction. And so, you know that. And I've and I heard someone say specifically, stick to dialogue and action, and don't do any of that boring interior monologue. No one wants to hear mm. that. That's like a voiceover in a movie. That's you know. And so, you know, I was starting to fidget and squirm in my chair at this point. Because I think that that's why interior monologue is why most people say that they love the book better than the movie, because it gives you that intimacy. Right. Characters that you don't get otherwise. And so sometimes when I'm working with a client and there is something specific that I'd like to teach them the best way I know how it is to point them to a specific work and for how to do interior monologue well. I would say read The Cicada Tree by Robert Gualmi. <laughs> this is how you do it. And if you would like to I'd love for you to read one of my favorite examples of this. We start out here on page 144 where we've been introduced to the to kind of like the villainous family the Mayfields and everyone wants to be able to go to their house for a party. And so if you could read, um, starting with, there were times I could hardly look away from Marlissa down to the bottom of that section, that would be great.
2: There were times I could hardly look away from Marlissa, me sitting so close behind her at school, the urge to reach out and touch her, to nudge my nose up into her hair and sniff. I was glad I was not the only one with these inclinations. What do you think it's like? What? To be Mayfield. To be that pretty. Annalise knew, Will you hush your mouth. You're every bit as pretty as Marlissa Mayfield, and you certainly are kinder, sweeter. Jane, that's such a nice thing to say. I squeezed her arm and then hugged her. Aside from Aunt May and Mama, no one ever called me pretty. Was it possible I was lovely as Marlissa Mayfield? But why did pretty matter if my inside parts did not match? I imagined my inners discolored and mushy, a half eaten watermelon left too long in the sun. I was layers of mean thoughts and murderous prayers. Just how awful could I be? What else might I be capable of if a thing needed doing? To what lengths would I go to to get my hands on an invitation to mistletoe? Was Jane Fenton even safe? I pulled her closer and squeezed tight. Is anyone?
3: Thank you. I just love that because imagine not hearing what's going on her head in that scene and you know otherwise we would just have this very simple back and forth dialogue and we would be missing so much richness so much insight into the character just the way that that entire passage and the interior thoughts of this girl sets the stage for so much that happens in this story because she is such a catalyst for so much of the action. So there's definitely no lack of dialogue and action, but this just sweetens it all up and makes it so rich. And so again, I feel that no matter what genre someone is writing in that really great interior monologue can just elevate the whole thing. And so again, if you want to see how to do it well, run right out, read the cicada Mm -hmm. tree, and take notes.
2: Thank you. That's a compliment, huge
3: compliment.
1: And I was going to add, Elizabeth I'm very disturbed to hear that going on in workshops because I think what makes, like you just said, I think what makes elevates mysteries, elevates thrillers, elevates suspense, elevates great romance. I think it's the touch of the literary that is so important. And you can't do that if you're simply doing dialogue and you're simply doing action. Or I don't see how readers can fall in love with the characters if you're not going inside their heads and helping the reader understand. And what Annalise is thinking, we've all thought, you know, oh, that's so nice. She thinks I'm pretty. Am I? Could I be as good as this person, as beautiful as whatever? And she can't quite believe it so much so that all of us have those insecurities. And that's the literary touch
3: that elevates great writing. Right, and a lot of it at its core is allowing your characters to introspect, to have them think about their own thinking processes, to have them doubt themselves and their own perceptions, to be constantly running experiments mentally about how they perceive the world around them. and Robert, you do that through this 11 year old girl who's just constantly introspective and even aware of her own frightening nature. You know, she gets thrown off by her own self all the time. It's really <laughs> great. And I was gonna say, Gabby, in Gabby's book,
1: South of Happily, if we didn't have, know what was going on inside Katie's head, she's got one of the most fascinating characters ever and you don't probably wouldn't have even called it interior monologue but it is right
0: well this is one of the things that i wanted to talk about because i just started reading this book robert and i felt like you're writing and, and i try to write this way as well but you are far outpacing me here that katie is very katie's like her head is cracked open and there's this goop going on inside and the reader is up close and personal with that. And when I started reading your book, and this sort of touches on what Elizabeth and Kathy were saying, that your your words, and I don't, please forgive me, and I have no other way to describe this, and I've been trying to think about it all day, your sentences are juicy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I like mean? that. And I, no, I That's a huge compliment. I feel like I could, like, twist a sentence and all of this emotion would come dripping out of it and i try to do that but you're doing a beautiful job of it and i don't know if you want to read i just i just kind of want to read the first paragraph of your book because you caught me i started reading that and i stopped immediately and i was like holy crap this is it's juicy it's incredible so do you want to read it just the first paragraph because it's so beautiful
2: a storm was coming Way off in the distance, as inky edges began to spoil the late morning sky, a low roll of thunder grumbled from the ground, tickling the bottom of my bare feet.
0: That's so incredible to me. I was wondering, when you were talking about sort of living in your own imagination and what your process is, when you sit down to write something like that, I can tell you what I do is I'll just sit and be very quiet and really try to get into the character and be realistic and Put on paper the very deep thoughts that I'm thinking. So I was wondering what your process is to get this beautiful sentence out, what's actually going on in your brain that you can write these words down?
2: Madness. <laughs> I, th- I think you're, I, I'm, I'm similar in that regard. I'm, I'm an emotional writer. And I do, I, I employ what I call method writing which is which is i think like what actors do you know method acting i really do try to embody and understand the characters as much as i possibly can i'm a very slow writer and i wish that i had the ability just to lay down the groundwork for a story but i'm so obsessive about language that's hard for me to turn over pages to my little critique group without it having some level of polish on it my work is so near and dear to me that I want it to be its best when anyone sets eyes to it. So I do, I labor at the line level. I, I really do.
0: I completely feel that. I mean, you, we're like suffering for our sentences and they have to be perfect. So I, I completely understand what you're saying and you're doing just such an amazing job of it because right away I was like, that's just the most incredible sentence right there. It, it just blew me away. And,
1: and part Thank of you. what makes it, I think, so powerful is we automatically understand something really essential about Annalise. She's connected. She's connected to the elements. And so for this bizarre uh, cicada invasion, or the plague of the locusts is what it reminded me of, and for that to happen, she's a kid who's going to feel it the most and be at the center of it. She's a... the earth is their her base, and the the light, the thunder, and the storm. We automatically know that she's a child who spends a lot of time in the natural world. And that's important for the rest of your story.
2: Thank you. You know, I, I mean, I feel like personally, I feel like I lived every moment Annalise lived throughout the book. I really, you know, felt that connected. When I, it's interesting, you know, I didn't have... I actually started the book about three chapters in, which worked well for me because after I'd gone on the journey, then I had a sense of how the book should begin. So I did, when I started the book, I really didn't have a beginning, which is odd. Uh, with this next project that I'm working on, I feel like, like I have a, a solid beginning. But with this book, I was really just playing in the creative sandbox. And so I, and it, it was wearing on me. I think I don't have a beginning. I don't have a beginning. And when it was all said and done and I came back and I thought, okay, I need... One or two chapters to kick this book off and and it went fairly quickly after i knew i knew how the story ended it was easy to understand where it would begin
1: and you knew annalise i well, did literally inside and out that's the perfect segue into what i was going to ask you but before i ask you about your next project obviously you can order your book amazon and all the places that sell books do you have a favorite independent bookstore that you'd like to mention
2: well, I will you know, there have been so many independent bookstores that have been kind to me. I will mention Foxtel Bookshop because they were the first bookshop to accept me and to actually manage my book launch. So they were they've been really kind and supportive of me. So I would certainly say if you're in the Atlanta area, head on out to Foxtel Bookshop or order one online from them.
1: Yeah, they have a lot of stuff going they're real pool influence in the book world. Absolutely. Well, okay, give us just a little bit of what your next work is going to be
2: like, about? So I'm about 30,000 words into, probably well to be maybe an 85,000 or 90,000 word novel. And it's, it's Southern fiction, elements of magical realism, a lot more elements of magical realism in, in Southern Gothic as well. It's a lot darker than the cicada tree, I feel. And um, there's more world building in this particular novel than than I did in The Cicada Tree. So I'm really excited about the project, but it is is dark. It's told, it takes place in 1931 on a fictitious Georgia coastal barrier island I'm calling Good Hope. And the protagonist is a 14-year-old white girl named Leontine Sky, and she lives on the marsh with her mother. And her mother, like all the Sky women before them, tend this ancient... Tree named Damascus. And it's from this tree that um, across the river captures haints, ghosts that, that cross the river, and they wheedle their way into these seraphigs that grow on the tree and they dissolve the haints. And it's from these figs that uh, the sky women make this highly addictive drug called redemption. These individuals that are addicted to this drug are known as sinners. So ultimately, Leontine, more than anything, wants to escape her mother, and she wants to escape the island, and she wants to escape her destiny attending this ancient tree named Damascus.
1: I love it. And what's funny to me is I know you're saying magical realism, and I'm thinking, okay, that makes sense. I mean, (laughs) I don't know if that's a southern thing, a writer thing, a woman thing, but it's just like I'm not questioning any of those possibilities. They're just... Like you said, you just immerse yourself in that world. Well, thanks for letting us immerse ourselves in your world for a little while tonight, Robert. We
0: totally wish the best of you. Did Anybody want to say something? Except thank you, thank you, Robert. I want to say thank you too. And my mother is about to rip this book out of my hand because she said, (laughs) she, she took one look at it and she, this is a woman who's probably read more books than, you know, that's in the New York Public Library. She's 91. And she saw the cover, and she saw the title, and she said, "I have to read that."
2: Well, I hope she enjoys. Thank it. you for
0: that. I know she will because she's she's a huge reader. So I, I'm excited for her to read it. Well, we can't wait for your next one, and we can't wait till a time when we can all get together in
1: person. And uh, I, I want to bring up Faulkner then, but I won't do that tonight. So. Okay. <laughs> but thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me. It was a, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us tonight. We welcome your comments and invite you to check out our Wild Women Who Write website. Until next time, keep writing and stay wild.